Good morning. Good morning. Uh, it's good to see all of you Sunday morning. Um, so I apparently did not do my homework. I was supposed to find someone else to speak with me. And um, I also thought this was like an hour long meeting. Apparently it's two hours. So we're just going to wing it today. Um, and we'll see what God wants me to say. So anyway, so we are talking about steps six through nine. So if you will, please turn to page 76 in your big book, top paragraph. I'm going to read um, the paragraphs for um, steps six and seven. There's two of them, so they go pretty quickly. Um, and then we'll go from there. So if we can answer to our satisfaction, we then look at step six. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can he now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something we will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. When ready, we say something like this. My creator, I am now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have then completed step seven. Okay, so those are pretty clear directions, right? And these steps sound pretty simple. I mean, it only takes a paragraph to describe them. But um, we are jumping in literally in the middle of the book. It's as if you opened, like, great expectations to the middle of the book and expected to know what happened before, you know, we're in the middle of the book. So this first sentence to somebody who's just opening this book, if we can answer to our satisfaction, what are we answering? What's the question? So we have to go back one page to page 75. And at the bottom of the last paragraph, it says, carefully reading the first five proposals, we ask if we have omitted anything, for we are building an arch through which we, could, we shall walk a free man at last. Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement put into the foundation? Have we tried to make mortar without sand? So now it's like, are we, is this like, like an architectural book? Like, what are we talking about? I don't, what are we building here? So we got to go even farther back, right? Before we can even answer this to our satisfaction. So I'd actually like to start at step one and do a quick review before we get to step six, because if I haven't done those first five steps, step six isn't gonna do me anything. And I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. I, I decided, I decided, um, maybe at the beginning of the summer, middle of the summer, that I needed to do another thorough mini fourth step. So I jumped in, I started doing it, and I, I had some questions, and I called someone, and I said, you know, I have this question about my fourth step. He's like, well, that's interesting that you started a fourth step. Did you do steps one, two, and three first? <laughs> And in my head, before I had start, done that fourth step, I was like, oh, well, I've done one, two, and three, so it's fine. He's like, no, you need to do, you know, I said something like, well, you know, I took it when I've done it. And she's, he's like, so in other words, no. And I'm like, well, I don't like you anymore. So um, point was, I spent a morning and read through again and did steps one, two, and three, and then went back to my fourth step. So before I can do step six, I have to do one through five. They're in order for a reason. This isn't like an a la carte thing. Um, I've tried that. It didn't, both literally and figuratively, and it did not work. So um, very quickly, step one, we admitted we were powerless over food, dash that our lives had become unmanageable. Um, so when I first came in, I thought, I have a problem with eating, and once I stop eating and lose weight, my life is perfect. That step tells me the complete opposite. Um, it tells me I'm screwed, and I use food to make it better. Um, which is what the dash is for. These, they're not, my life is unmanageable because of food. My life is unmanageable and I've been medicating with food. Um, so once I take food away, then I'm just sick, um, which is why the next steps follow. Um, and I didn't know that 
until well after I had been abstinent. And I, got, I came to the program at 19. It took me two years to do some research to make sure I really qualified for this thing. And then when I was 22, I sat in a meeting one night and I decided I wanted what these people had. And so I got on a food plan and I stuck to that food plan. And I have stuck to that food plan for almost 15 years. Um, however, I lost, um, I was almost 250 pounds and then I lost weight. I got down to about a size two, my period stopped um, and people asked me if I was sick and I loved every second of it. Um, however, I was just as manic and fearful and resentful, like even more so now than I was at 250. At least with, at 250, I had some kind of buffer. You know, now it was, I was like, you know, I, I say like if you watch um, Terminator, um, they have those like robots that look like people and then they get you alone and they like eat your face. Like that's kind of like what I was. I was an, a, a, a sociopath passing for a normal person. Um, Anyway, long story short, I, I, I had been thin for a while, and fa I was like, I can't live like this. I thought my, the credits in my romantic comedy were supposed to be rolling once I got thin, you know? But it turned out it was this horror movie sequel, you know? So um, I ended up connecting. At the time, I was living in Boston, and I connected with um, a group of women who were um, in something called the Big Book Step Study through um, another fellowship, but who in the, it started on Cape Cod in Massachusetts, and they, uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s, had seen that there was sort of a dilution of the Big Book in a lot of meetings, a lot of discussion meetings, and so they committed to really starting a movement to go back and start working the steps as they're laid out in the Big Book. And at the time, I didn't really know what that entailed because my experience with the Big Book had been reading the stories in the back. Um, I probably skimmed the front, but it was like, yeah, yeah, I know, I can't eat sugar, okay, thanks. Um, but when I read the back, it was like all these happy endings, you know? But I didn't realize, and they say this in the book, that all the stories in the back are there describing people's experience of finding God. I, I, I don't know, I just skipped that part. I was like, oh, you were a prostitute and now you're married? That's so nice, you know? Like, <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I wanted. I wanted to stop being an emotional prostitute and get married, you know? And I did. <laughs> anyway, long story short, these people showed me how to work the big book. And I remember um, at that point realizing that I, I could not fix myself. And I had known already with the food. I knew from the time I was five years old I could not fix myself with the food. I looked around the cafeteria in my school and saw, and saw that no other kids were digging um, other kids' pizza crusts out of the garbage cans and stealing snacks from other kids' lunches. I knew from the time I was young that there was something up with me. What I didn't know was that it wasn't my job to fix it. You know, the first half of my life was me trying to find that magic pill that was going to make me either stop eating compulsively or what I really preferred was to eat compulsively but not suffer the consequences. Um, so uh, I didn't realize that it wasn't my job. And so once I... I was already at this point of abstinence and I didn't realize that I had basically been on a, a diet with group support. And so um, I had to take my third step, which was knowing, excuse me, my second step, knowing that not only was I powerless over food, which at that point I, I knew, um, but also that I was powerless over everything and that I couldn't fix it. I had tried. I tried to fix everything. I even wanted to be a good person, you know? I really did. I had like really good intentions of wanting to be a good person. And I just kept screwing it up. 
because I was still me, and I'm, I discovered that I'm just as powerless over those character defects and those shortcomings as I was over a slice of pizza. Um, so anyway, I had to find another way, and that other way was, uh, began with step three, which was turning my will and my life over to the care of God of my understanding. Um, for me, developing a relationship with God was um, terrifying because the God of my understanding really scared me. I grew up, um, I am Jewish, and I grew up uh, going to an, a religious school. My family wasn't totally religious, but that school happened to be the closest one to my house, so that's where I went. Um, and I heard, you know, crazy things about, you know, God um, turning people into pillars of salt and blowing up cities. And I had one teacher who, I'm sure had really good intentions, um, but told us, I remember this, she said that if we ever walked into a church, we would turn into a pillar of salt. So when I was in fifth grade, I signed up for an acting class at St. Peter's Church in Livingston, New Jersey. And this was like the churchiest church you've ever seen in your life. It looked like a medieval castle, okay? It had like the stone facade and the like, the, the uh, spade-shaped red door. Like, there was no mistaking that this place was a church, okay? It was not like a shop right or something. Like, you knew where you were going. There was, like, you know, the Jesus on the cross on the, you know, whatever. Anyway, so, so, and Jesus, great guy, you know? But, like, he wasn't doing so well when I saw him on the cross. So, anyway, long story short, I really wanted to go to this class. I knew what was at risk. I might turn into salt, but I really liked acting, so I was willing to take the risk. So I walked through the door of this church like, like this, like waiting for that moment. So as is obvious, I did not turn into a pillar of salt, um, which was almost conf- as confusing as if I had. Because she said that I would, so why didn't, it was, I just, I, I, it was very confusing. Um, I've since learned that, you know, a lot of dogma and philosophy is not, and this goes for every religion, is not necessarily the truth of the religion. People get stuck in the, in the trappings of it. And it's my job to look at what's real and take what I want and leave what I don't. Um, and not say, well, she's this, so the whole religion is, you know, a disaster and I want nothing to do with it. I've done that too. Anyway. So I took step three with the God of my understanding. I was told that I could fire that God and hire a new one, so I did that. Um, Because if, and this is my understanding, this is my opinion, you will find this nowhere in the book. However, um, if God, let's say, it says in the book, if God is everything or God is nothing. So I vote, okay, God's everything, why not? Um, But if God is everything, then God can be whatever I want because God's everything, right? Um, it can all be true. So if I need, depending, you know, today's Sunday. I have a lot going on today. So I really need a coach. I need a cheerleader. I need a mom because my mom died about nine years ago. So, you know, I have, there, you know, I need a babysitter, someone to keep my kids occupied. You know, I need all those things. So God's got to be those things for me today. And all of those things are true. Um, anyway, so I took my third step um, with this sponsor Um, as I would again a few years later, and not really knowing what I was doing, but knowing I wanted to do something different, which I find is the experience for a lot of people who are new to the steps. I don't really know what I'm getting into, but I do know that what I've been doing hasn't been working, and more is revealed later. And I think that's totally cool. You know, if we knew everything that was going to happen already, then we would have this thing in the bag, but we don't. So anyway, then it came to a fourth step, 
a fearless and thorough moral inventory of myself, keywords being fearless and thorough. Um, and I followed the instructions in the book. I wrote my fourth step. And um, I used to take a lot of pride in how long it took. Um, but now, it, you know, the original big book, uh, excuse me, the original AAs, they did it in a day. You know, they took steps one through nine in a week, you know, done. Um, so it really doesn't matter how much time I labored over my fourth step. The point is I did it, it was done, I turned it over in my fifth step. So now we come to the question, the question's at the end. Is our work solid so far? Meaning, have I really turned my will and my life over? Have I made as thorough an inventory as I can? And have I been completely honest with another person and with God? Have I kept anything to myself? Because those are the little secrets that I will one day eat over. So they're saying, have I laid a foundation? Are the stones properly in place? If you go back earlier in the book, they made a few other references to placing stones in different places, the keystone, the, the foundation stone. So clearly we're building a new structure in which to live. You know, I, I think about the three little pigs. You know, they have the first pig who builds with sticks and they're saying, oh, it's so great. You know, this one who builds it, I don't remember what he uses, straw, like what? It builds with straw and then the last one with brick, right? So like the one with the straw and the one with the, the sticks, it's like, what do you got? You know, as soon as the wolf comes, he blows once and the whole thing comes down. So now the, the, so while they're going and like, you know, playing on the Wii, they're, you know, the one with the bricks is actually working and building a solid structure. So I tried to live in a house of straw. I tried to live in a house of sticks and the whole thing fell down because it was founded on nothing. So now I really got to do the work and build a house of bricks so that when something comes and tries to blow my house down, it's solid. And usually the one that tries to blow my house down is me. <laughs> Anyway, so have we skimped on the cement put into the foundation? So again, that foundation, we need something strong and solid because we've dealt with the past. Now we need something that's gonna hold us up for the future. Have we tried to make mortar without sand? So again, it's that same question. We need a quality foundation in order to move forward in our lives. So. Step, they say that step six, I just recently did a step six and seven, and the person I gave it over to gave me a book um, that is not OA-approved literature, but it's all about steps six and seven. Um, and if you would like the title, you're welcome to ask me later. Anyway, so they say that step six deals with the past by being willing to let go of how we dealt with life in the past, and step seven is being willing to do it differently in the future. Um, so let's look at this uh, paragraph on step six again. If we can answer to our satisfaction, we then look at step six. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. So willingness to what? Willingness to not do the same stupid shit that we did our entire lives. And to let go of those behavior patterns that are detrimental to us. And we know what they are now because we've written about them in our fourth step, which assumedly, if we've gotten this far, we have been fearless and thorough about. I'll give you an example. So my husband, who is a wonderful person, also makes me insane. And sometimes I will do something, I will set an expectation for him to do something. Okay, let me rephrase. I'm a very disciplined person, I wasn't always. But one of the things that this program taught me is the importance of being on time. Um, not only for my own sense of sanity, but as a gesture of respect to other people. Because when I show up late, it's basically telling other people my time is more important than yours. Mm -hmm. And so 
my husband, I say, and he knows I say this, he's not the tiniest. <laughs> so, so I will say to him, knowing how he operates, I need you to meet me at 3 o'clock. We need to be there at 3. So in my head, when I say this thing starts at 3, I'm ready to roll at 2.30 because we have to be there at 3. Whereas my husband's like, oh, 2.55, let's get out of bed. You know, it's very different. So I sometimes, for whatever reason, if I want emotional distance or I don't want him to come close to me or I want to punish him for some reason, I will set up an expectation of we need to be here at this time knowing he will be late so that I can be mad at him and I can punish him later. Um, doesn't really work for me so much. Um, I don't, you know, today in my life, I don't like discord in my home. Um, it doesn't serve anyone in my home. We try, we shoot for healthy discussion now. It's not perfect because I still micromanage, but like fighting and punishing and emotional withdrawal is not a healthy way to have a relationship with someone. I didn't always know that. However, after hitting a bottom with that and seeing the effects on my relationship, I didn't know how else to do it, but I was willing to do something different. So that's where step six comes in. I'm willing to be different. What different looks like, I have no clue because I've only ever done it this way. But I don't want to do it this way, so I'm willing to let it go. So it says, are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Okay, so that's a loaded question. It looks simple, but it's not. So are we now ready? I don't know. There are a lot of character defects and, and um, shortcomings that, quite frankly, work for me. Um, you know, I, most people gossip. They do. And if I don't gossip, then what do I have to connect me with other people? I don't want to let that go. Plus, I like what's going on with other people. I like to talk about that. It's interesting. You know, I'm a writer. I want to hear other people's stories. I want to hear what's going on. I want to know about stuff. There's also the ego hit of having news to deliver, you know? Like, I, oh, I knew about that already. You know, I, I'm, I'm in. I'm in the know. But, uh, but I know it's objectionable. You know, I know this. But am I ready to let it go? So it says in the AA 12 and 12, um, for those who aren't familiar, after, after this book was published a few years later, um, Bill Wilson wrote um, a supplemental volume called The 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Alcoholics Anonymous, which discuss each step more in depth. And so one of the things he talks about in step six is that it says, I'm paraphrasing, but something to the extent of we alcoholics will we want to be as perfect as we can get away with. Meaning, <laughs> if, this, if I can be like a little jealous, I'll do that. You know, it's the same thing with the food. I will eat until I can't get away with it anymore. And the truth is, I know people who were bulimic for like 20, 30 years, but they were thin, so they stuck with it. If I hadn't been 250 pounds, I'd probably still be eating compulsively today. That's the truth. I was wearing it, so I had no choice. So in that way, I was lucky. If I had gotten away with it, I probably wouldn't be sitting here right now. I would either be dead, which is very possible, or I would just be wreaking havoc all over anyone who came within like a mile radius of me. Mm -hmm. um, because I could get away with it. 
That's how I operate. And that's how most humans operate. You know, we will be as good as we can get away with. Because the truth is, I don't necessarily want to be good. I want other people to think that I'm good. I want people to think that I'm honest and that, you know, I'm giving and, and compassionate. Do I want to be those things? Nah. You know, like, no, it's, it's work to be those things. I have to, like, care about other people and think about something besides me. That's kind of a downer, you know? I happen to be the most fascinating thing I think about. Um, but the point is, it's being willing to let go of everything. Not, you know, holding on to what works for me still. It's saying, you know what, I gotta let it all go. Now, I've heard people say that I live in six and seven every day. Personally, I would find that the most painful, horrific experience of my life, to be throwing in the towel and taking it back every single day. Step six and seven are designed to be done after step five. I don't live in six and seven. I do them after step five, and then I do my inventory in step 10 every night. Step six and seven are not meant to be repeated unless they are part of the cycle of steps one through seven. Um, Taking, I mean, I happen to say the seventh step prayer every morning in my meditation, but it's not the seventh step as if it's following the step six. Are you following me? Does that make sense? I'm still willing to have God you know, have all of me and all those things, and I I ask for it every morning, but it's not the same kind of step work as it would be saying, I have a very clear picture in my head, I have a list in front of me of everything I need gone. Um, It's more of a follow-up to the third step. All that inventory stuff, once I've taken this, is for for 10, 11, and 12. Um, Anyway, so now we're asking, can he now take them all, every one? So, Here's something interesting. Can he take them all? So if you look at the beginning of this chapter um, on page, let me look, hold on. Okay, on page 72 in the first chapter, it's in the middle, excuse me, on the first paragraph. In the middle of the first paragraph, it says, after we've made our personal inventory and just go down to the middle of the paragraph, it says, now these, sorry, um, we have admitted certain defects. We have ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We have put our finger on these weak items in our personal inventory. Now these are about to be cast out. So the words cast out, that's the language of exorcism. That's not like, you know, I'm giving anything away. Cast out means somebody's reaching in and taking them. They're being taken out of me, like a surgery. This isn't me kind of doling out little pellets of my character defects. This is somebody reaching in, taking out the whole thing, and taking it away somewhere. That's not something I can do on my own. I remember being in my, I was in college, living in my, I was working for the summer in in Cape Cod and living in my family's home there and reading um, a lot of books on New Age spirituality, Taoism, Buddhism. I really, I, even before I got absent, I've always been very much of a seeker. And I remember reading um, The Four Agreements and not OA approved literature. And reading this book, which is, you know, all about spirituality and, and, and watching your word and, you know, real, how, how to comport yourself. And meanwhile, I would take a break every three pages to go into the kitchen and like rip off some French bread and like dunk it in cheese and then stuff my face, you know? And meanwhile, trying to take these messages to heart. And then the minute I interacted with another person, I would just vomit all over them, you know? I mean, I think looking back now, the reason that summer was so wonderful is because I lived alone. And like, I didn't have to interact with other people. 
because um, that's really where my trouble comes in. If it was just me, I'd be a-okay, you know, but life doesn't work like that. And so the point is, I cannot on my own devices take away the things that block me from God. If I could, then I would. But if the problem centers in my brain, how am I supposed to think my way out of my problem? That makes zero sense. It's like somebody having cancer and then giving them more cancer to beat the cancer. Doesn't, you can't. They just get sicker. So it's a hamster in a wheel. If it's happening up here, something outside of this has to take it away. Again, can, can he now take them all? Every one. Again, not the ones we want to hold on to. We have to let go of everything and be willing to let it all go. If we still cling to something, we will not let go. So clearly these guys knew what was going on because, you know, they know who they're talking to. It's not, it, this isn't, they say, you know, we, we strive for progress, not perfection. Um, but in this case, we're shooting for perfection, missing the mark, but trying to inch our way as close to it as we can get. Not giving ourselves excuses, well, I can never be perfect. It's all about progress. In this case, no. We are trying to be as perfect as we can. And there's a difference. We will never be divinely perfect, but we can be as perfect as we can be. We just have to be willing to do it. If we still cling to something we will not let go, because most of us do, we ask God to help us be willing. So again, willingness also comes from God. There are plenty of things I don't want to do, but, you know, I... If I don't have the willingness, I can be given the willingness if I ask for it. There are plenty of times where I've you know, said, I want to want to do this. I, and the truth is, sometimes I don't even want to want to do this, but I know I'm supposed to want to do this, so I'm asking you to make me want to do this. Um, simply because I know what the alternative is. You know, it says we accept a spiritual way of life or be doomed to an alcoholic death. So listen. When I first heard those alternatives, I was like, well, can you tell me how bad it gets? You know, like, like what, what does a death from compulsive overeating look like? Um, I just, I just want to make an educated decision here, you know? And for me, that looked like either choking to death um, while purging, which almost happened, um, diabetes. Um, I know people who have lost limbs, you know, feet, hands because of diabetes and then continue eating. Um, high blood pressure, heart attack, hypertension, um, all those things that, you know, I know people with PCOS who can't have children, they've lost their hair, um, all kinds of different issues um, that are related. And the thing is, with compulsive eating, there's not even that, like, glamour factor that, you, that like, alcoholism or drug addiction can give you. Like, there's, like, choking, like, I think of, like, Mama Cass, right? Like, she choked to death on a ham sandwich in her bed. Not as glamorous as trashing a hotel room at the St. Regis with, like, cocaine everywhere. Like, there's nothing cute about dying of compulsive overeating. There just isn't. Um, that doesn't mean I'm not tempted to do it, though. Because at least I won't have to deal with all the pain that comes from living as an unmedicated addict. Because um, that's really what this is about. The truth is... Compulsive overeating worked for me for a long time until it stopped. It actually helped me survive a pretty painful childhood. 
um, in some ways, and, and mind you, that that pain was self-created because I had wonderful parents, a wonderful family that had nothing to do with it. I experienced pain based on my perception of what happened in my childhood. I've heard people say, you know, there are two stories of my childhood, what happened in my childhood and what I thought happened in my childhood. Um, and for me, what I thought happened in my childhood caused me a lot of pain. And food helped me survive that. And I'm glad that it did because I'm happy to be alive today. Um, however, eventually that medication turned around on me and bit me in the butt. And so once I took that away, I needed another way to live. It says it in the doctor's opinion. If I don't have another way to live, I will inevitably go back to the eating, the shopping, the drugs, the drinking. It doesn't matter what it is because once I get back to that place of spiritual dis-ease, the restless, irritable, and discontent, and I have no other way to deal with it, that's all I got. So I need to find another way to live, which is why we have to be willing to let go of everything that was blocking us before. So... Now we're at step seven, um, which I read already. And that prayer, as I said, we say after, the way that I was taught to do this is um, I write my fourth, I sit down with my sponsor, I give over my fifth, and then I follow the directions in the big book. And it says, returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour. So I take an hour, sit in meditation. Um, if anything comes up that I forgot, I'll write it down. And then I take my step, I'll call, my, call the person I gave it over to, tell them what I forgot, and then I will take step six and seven. Um, pretty straightforward. You know, it's, it's really nothing fancier than that. And sometimes, um, you know, doing a fifth step and hearing a fifth step can be very exhausting. And so I did a fifth step at night. It was very late. I went to sleep, woke up very early the next morning and did my six and seven then because it was, I needed, I needed to go to bed. Um, but that said, you take your hour, and that's when six and seven happen. So we've taken step seven now. We've made the prayer. So we've had our willingness established in step six. We're really ready to be as perfect as possible. And then we ask God to take those things to willing that you should have all of me, not just the good stuff and not just the bad stuff, all of it. It says earlier in the book that we become spearheads of God's ever-advancing creation. So before that, we thought of ourselves as the Alpha and Omega. We lived like you know, medieval peasants who thought that the, that the Earth was the center of the universe, except we were the center of the universe. So now we laugh at the peasants, right? That makes zero sense. The sun is the center, and we're orbiting around the sun. But quite frankly, we were doing the same thing. I'm the center of gravity in the entire world that orbits around me. Doesn't, you know, most scientists will disagree with that. Um, so anyway. So I'm now willing that you should have all of me good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. So clearly our goal is not for me to feel better. It's not. The goal is to make me useful. It says that freedom comes from forgetting about myself, which is completely antithetical to every instinct that I have. However, with God's help, I am freed from all, excuse me, all the bullshit that I create, all the gunk that I have that, that blocks up the channel. And then I'm actually useful. I'm here to do a job. You know, I am an agent. I am an employee. You know, when I go to work, I don't sit there saying to my boss, ah, you know, I'm just, I'm not feeling it today. Just not feeling it. Sorry. He's like, you ready to work? And I'm like, yeah, I'm ready to work. You know, that's what, that's, I'm being paid to work. That's what I'm here for. So for the price of my life, I have to be a contributing member of this planet. 
um, in exchange for my recovery. I need to help other people. That's the trade-off. Because otherwise I just die. So, you know, you can basically just ask yourself, do I want to die? Some people say yes, and that's cool. You know, go for it. Apparently it's really nice on the other side. I just hope it doesn't suck too bad before you get there. Um, so some people choose to go that way. I know plenty of people who know all about this program and choose not to take it. And for some of them, the price of getting better is too high because they have too many things that they have built up, too many lies that they have told themselves. And if they walk away from that, it means reevaluating everything. And for two people, for some people, that's too terrifying. And so they stay sick. Via con Dios. Go ahead. This program is not for people who need it. It's for the people who do it. Not the people who want it, because you can want it all you want. If you don't do it, it's not going to help you. So it's for the people who come in here and say, okay, I want what this book is, and I'm going to do whatever you tell me. That's what happened to me. I had to be desperate enough and say, I will do whatever you tell me to do. I don't care. I'll do it. And I did. And that's why I got what, they, what the book said I was going to get. It's like A plus B equals C. Um, but there are people who don't want to do that. Fine. Don't do it. Good for you. But if you want it, then it, thankfully we're given very clear instructions on how to do it. So it says, grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. It does not say, grant me strength as I go out from here to feel really good all the time. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. You know, there, if, if you read the history of, of the first, the founding members of AA, most of them were broke for most of their lives. But they were out there saving people's lives because that's, th that's what they knew their jobs were. So it didn't really matter. You know, I'm not here to get financial security or find my true love or have my happily ever after. A lot of crappy stuff happened after I, you know, did this work. As I said, I lost my mother. This past summer I had a miscarriage. You know, th like, th it's not all wine and roses. It's really not. It's, life is not easy, but the point is, not only can I, I'm given tools to handle it with serenity and joy, and I'm taught that those painful experiences are all things to be used to help other people. That's what it's for. So, but again, I wouldn't have known that if I hadn't stuck around for this. So we've completed step seven. So let's continue on page 76. Now we need more action, without which we find that faith without works is dead. Let's look at steps eight and nine. We have a list of all persons we have harmed and to whom we are willing to make amends. How do we have this list? Well, we made it when we took inventory. So by the time, if you've done a thorough fourth step when you've taken your inventory, by the end, I was so sick of myself, I wanted to like divorce myself um, because you really get a picture of your gross patterns and how you continuously hurt other people. So by the end, it should be very clear. Yep, I did that. Yep, I did that. This guy, I did that. So if, by, if you're still fuzzy after your fourth step about like what your part was, I suggest going back and, and doing some review or getting someone to help you because it should be very clear by the end just what kind of damage you have done. Um, anyway. We subjected ourselves to a drastic self-appraisal. Now we go out to our fellows and repair the damage done in the past. 
We attempt to sweep away the debris which has accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. So this is a reference to step three earlier in the book where they talk about the actor. Um, for anyone who's not familiar with that, they um, use a metaphor of, of an actor who's been cast in a show. And they try to direct the other actors, arrange the lights and, and the choreography and all that. When that's not their job. They're not the director. They're the actor. And I happen to relate with that personally because I actually did exactly that in high school. I was um, in my high school drama club, and they hired, like, a professional director to direct the show. But I was like, yeah, whatever. And I, like, started, like, directing the show. And he's like, you're 16. Can you, you know? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but I've watched a lot of movies. I know, you know. Because um, I was such an asshole. Um, anyway... But the point is, I completely relate with that because if you look, an actor, what, go, read the credits of any movie. An actor is just the person who does what the director tells them to do. That's it. That's all I'm supposed to do is show up and do what I'm told. I really did not have that skill until very recently. Um, it was, yeah, but no, but this is, no. Just shut up and do what you're told, <laughs> you know? Um, if we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. So my personal experience is by the time that I'm done with the thorough fourth step, I'm willing to do anything to get rid of this garbage that I have. Now, there are people to whom um, I might not want to make amends um, because for a variety of reasons. So that I might need willingness to do. Um, but in general, I'm willing to make any amends that I need to. Um, remember it was agreed at the beginning that we would go to any lanes for victory over alcohol. Because again, when in doubt, the question is, do you want to live or do you want to die? Probably there are still some misgivings. As we look over the list of business acquaintances and friends we have hurt, we may feel diffident, that means reluctant, not so interested, about going to some of them on a spiritual basis. In other words... The idea of going to an old boss, let's say, and saying, hey, I found God and I want to apologize to you. Not, not the way to go about it. Not the way to do it. Let us be reassured. To some people, we need not and probably should not emphasize the spiritual feature on our first approach. So when these guys were, were doing this work initially, they were, they were having actual legit prayer meetings. You know, they're, the beginning of AA for them was taking someone from the hospital, like once somebody was hospitalized, taking them to this home where they did work with people, bringing them upstairs and basically forcing them on their knees and saying, you're going to surrender right now. There was no choice. You do it or you're not in the club. It's that simple. So these people would like be forced into these spiritual experiences. And for them, it was God was the answer from number the first second. You know, for, for me, my experience was going to meetings and hearing about food plans. I didn't hear about God until like three years in. You know, which at the time I needed, I guess, because I needed those fundamental building blocks of learning how to eat a meal and then have that meal be over. Um, however, I wasn't given a, a solution. I was given a tool, but I wasn't given a solution. And so we, what they're saying is they're talking not a different language, but a much richer spiritual language than might necessarily be the case in more modern meetings. Um, however, um, in this meeting, I know there are a lot of people who are really active in working the steps and building a spiritual life. And so it's not like an anomaly to say, I'm working with God on this. Um, however, they're saying that people who you're making amends to don't necessarily need to know that. They're not they don't necessarily need to know that you're on a spiritual errand. 
it's, it suffices just as well to say, hey, I'm in recovery from addiction and part of the work that I'm doing is making amends to people and cleaning up the damage that I've done. For most people, that's perfectly adequate. Um, and most people, unless there's a history there that is complicated, want to be a part of that. They want to they wanna help. And, and a lot of times, all people want is an apology so, and, and a willingness to do things differently. So the point is, they're saying, you don't have to go in and say, I found God. I'm ready to do this work and be a useful tool for him. Most people are going to be like, you're nuts. Um, but they're saying, we might prejudice them. At the moment, we are trying to put our lives in order. But this is not an end in itself. Our real purpose is to fit ourselves to be of maximum service to God and the people about us. So once again, we're talking about being useful. We're talking about being an agent, an actor. We're not the director. And the purpose of this is not to make us feel better. It is to make ourselves of maximum service to God and the people about us. It is seldom wise to approach an individual who still smarts from our injustice to him and announce that we have gone religious. In the prize ring, this would be called leading with the chin. Why lay ourselves open to being branded fanatics or religious bores? We may kill a future opportunity to carry a beneficial message. That too, by saying to people, hi, I'm in recovery from compulsive overeating and bulimia. I have a problem with food and when I eat certain foods I can't stop. That's information that could be useful somewhere down the line. If not to that person, then to someone else. It's like bees pollinating. You know, they drop their little pollen everywhere and things grow. I have no idea where that information could go. But the point is, by being open with people about that, I have an opportunity to be useful somewhere down the line. You know, maybe that person has a spouse or a sister or a parent or a coworker who might benefit from that information. But our man is sure to be impressed with a sincere desire to set right the wrong. That's all we got to say. I'm just trying to make things right here. That's it. He is going to be more interested in a demonstration of goodwill than in our talk of spiritual discoveries. Especially in this day and age, there tends to be a lot of taboo around spirituality and God. Even though in recent years there's been more open talk about it, a lot of people, you say the word God and they're like a cartoon with the smoke behind their, like, you know, off in the other direction. Thank you, but no thank you. I'm not going to drink your Kool-Aid. But like, you know, so we don't need to talk about it really not their problem what we're doing you know my personal goal of deepening my relationship with God doesn't matter to them I'm just trying to be here for you to make this thing better for you which for me is like as I said my instinct is to, is just like gimme 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 mine 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 and so to go someplace and say hi I'm here to make things better for you the complete opposite of the way I've lived up until that point but that's the point We don't use this as an excuse for shying away from the subject of God. When it will serve any good purpose, we are willing to announce our convictions with tact and common sense. The question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. It may be he has done us more harm than we have done him, and though we may have acquired a better attitude toward him, we are still not too keen about admitting our faults. Nevertheless, with the person we dislike, we take the bit in our teeth. It is harder to go to an enemy than to a friend, but we find it much more beneficial to us. We go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit, confessing our former ill-feeling and expressing our regret. Okay, so I'm going to tell you a little story. My 
Mother died in May of 2009, and in August of 2010, my father remarried. He remarried someone who in her 50s had never been married before and had no concept of how to be a member of a family. This person had been on her own for her whole life. And so very quickly we got the message of where we fell on the totem pole, which was very painful because we had once had a very close-knit family. My mother was an amazing person and we, you know, we had my fam my father had had a house on Cape Cod and we spent every summer there together and it was and then now we came to the Cape House and it was we were basically got the message that you're lucky to be here, you're our guests. And that pissed me off. I did not like this woman, and to be honest, I still don't like her. But her job, it's not her job to be my best friend. However, when it first, when they first got married and I first started getting that message from this person, it was not pretty. It was not pretty. There was drama, there was arguments, there was all kinds of blech, stuff. You all know what I'm talking about. And despite the fact that this person said horrible, ugly things, she probably said 80% and I said like 20%. I still said 20%, which meant that I had to call her and make amends to her. Oh my, these were, this was the hardest amends I've ever done. Because first of all, I knew she was never gonna make amends to me. But also because she's evil. Like why should I make amends to her? That's not fair. Doesn't she know what she did? She made me do that. She made me act like a jerk. Long story short, I called and I made the amends. And here's what I will tell you. I did not have a cloud-opening spiritual experience. I didn't even feel better afterward, that's the truth. But two things happened. Number one, I knew that I had been of service to my father because it must have been challenging for him to have his wife and his daughter fighting with each other at his vacation home where he goes to relax. And two, it gave me the willingness to keep my mouth shut with her forever because I never wanted to have to make amends to her ever again, ever. And I have stuck to that. <laughs> and now I'm a doll around her, sort of. Um, but that's my point. There are people to whom I do not want to make amends, but it's not about me. It is not about me. It's not even about her. If when I took it as, oh, I'm being of service to my dad, done, let's do this, you know? My father gave me life, he put me through, he paid for two degrees, I think I can make amends to his wife, you know? And sometimes I have to find that circuitous route into being willingness, because if I'm stuck in justice and, you know, self-pity, I'm getting nowhere. Because no one ever said that this world is supposed to be fair. It's not fair. I, my checks and balances almost never work out ever in God's world I have no idea what's fair or not you know who knows so it's not about me okay so now we're on the bottom of page 77 under no condition do we criticize such a person or argue 
I think that makes pretty, that's pretty basic. Like, if you're going to apologize to someone and then you start fighting with them again, that's you're, it's pretty counterproductive. <laughs> Simply, we tell him that we will never get over drinking until we have done our utmost to straighten out the past. Pretty simple. I'm trying to get better. I'm trying to recover from addiction. And I can't unless I clear things up with you. That simple. We are there to sweep off our side of the street, realizing that nothing worthwhile can be accomplished, bless you, until we do so. Never trying to tell him what he should do. You know, she had her 80%. I could have called him and been like, well, maybe if you hadn't been such a bitch when you came in, I wouldn't have had to talk to you like that. Counterproductive. Counterproductive. His faults are not discussed. Damn it. (laughs) We stick to our own. If our manner is calm, frank, and open, we will be gratified with the result. Now, there are plenty of people who are very nervous when they make their amends. That's understandable in certain circumstances, but it gives us very clear directions on how we're supposed to behave. Calm, frank, and open. If things start getting heated, back off. Just back off, because that's not what you're supposed to be. In nine cases out of 10, the unexpected happens. Sometimes, the man we are calling upon admits his own fault. So feuds of years standing melt away in an hour. Rarely do we fail to make satisfactory progress. Our former enemies sometimes praise what we are doing and wish us well. Occasionally, they will offer assistance. It should not matter, however, if someone does throw us out of his office. We have made our demonstration, done our part, it's water over the dam. So again, it does not matter what their reaction is. It doesn't matter. It's us showing up for our part. It doesn't matter. I've been very lucky in my amends. Um, Because I started making amends at a young age, I didn't really have so many to make. Um, Now most of my amends are financial amends which are going to take a long time because I have five children. Um, but the point is, it doesn't, it, even if they sit there and scream in my face and call me a piece of garbage, it, do, it, does, it doesn't matter. I'm divinely protected. I'm there on a divine mission. So one, if they're yelling at me, that's, that's, not, that's their problem. You know, they have to live with that. I can just walk away in peace because I've done the work I needed to do. Most alcoholics know mon- owe money. Me. We do not dodge our creditors. Telling them what we are trying to do, we make no bones about our drinking. They usually know it anyway, whether we think so or not. Nor are we afraid of disclosing our alcoholism on the theory it may cause financial harm. Approached in this way, the most ruthless creditor will sometimes surprise us. Arranging the best deal we can, we let these people know we are sorry. Our drinking has made us slow to pay. We must lose our fear of creditors no matter how far we have to go, for we are liable to drink um, if we are afraid to face them. So I'm going to move down a little bit. Hold on a second. Okay, so 79, first full paragraph. Although these reparations take innumerable forms, there are a lot of different ways to do it. There are some general principles which we find guiding. Reminding ourselves that we have decided to go to any lanes to find a spiritual experience. That is the point, the spiritual experience. We ask that we be given strength and direction to do the right thing, no matter what the personal consequences might be. That's a prayer. We may lose our position or reputation or face jail, but we are willing, we have to be, we must not shrink at anything. Position, reputation, jail time, we're basically afraid of losing our own security. 
you know, security, other people's opinions. Those are things that came up in our fear inventory. Those are things we can't let dictate our behavior anymore. So if I'm making decisions based on fear of those things, then I'm not living in trust and reliance on God. If I'm really trusting and reliance on God, then I don't need those things anymore. I know that I get all those things from God. I don't need to rely on myself to keep those things intact. And most of the time, those things are work out anyway. Um, okay, let's see. We're, I'm moving to page 80. Hold on. Okay, bottom of page 80. The chances are that we have domestic troubles. Perhaps we were mixed up with women in a fashion we wouldn't care to have advertised. So I, ha- I don't have that problem, um, but that's really only because I was too young. Um, we doubt if, in this respect, alcoholics are fundamentally much worse than other people, but drinking does complicate sex relations in the home. And that's for sure, even if we're completely faithful the whole time. Um, because when we're stuck in addiction, we're in a relationship with ourselves and the food. I'm not in a relationship with my husband. And even when I'm abstinent, I'm having a relationship with my resentments and my expectations, <laughs> and then holding them up to him and seeing how he doesn't meet up to that. And then I punish him for that and withhold affection. So for sure, it affects my sex relations, 100%, because that's what alcoholism does. If I'm obsessed with myself, I cannot have a relationship with anybody else. After a few years with an alcoholic, a wife gets worn out, resentful, and uncommunicative. And again, this is a sober alcoholic. You don't have to be using. If you're not living in recovery, you are not fun to be around. How could she be anything else? The husband begins to feel lonely, sorry for himself. He commences to look around in nightclubs or their equivalent for something besides liquor. Um, So let's keep going down. Whatever the situation, we usually have to do something about it. If we are not sure our wife does not know, should we tell her? Not always, we think. So again, if, if there are questions of infidelity, this answers it right here. You have to be really careful about what you disclose to the other person if it involves somebody else. And that goes for anything. You know, I've had situations where I've had conversations with other men that are a little too intimate, like either on social media or, you know, at synagogue or whatever, um, which is, you know, a small emotional infidelity. I have to be honest about that. But if it's going to implicate the other person, then I have to pray and ask for guidance. Sometimes it's better not to say anything because it just causes more pain. The whole point here is to not cause pain anymore. If I'm gonna cause more pain to save my own butt, then it's, again, counterproductive. Um, And there are small ways that we can be unfaithful and emotionally unavailable to our partners. It's very subtle, but we can find them if we're honest about them. Um, Yeah, it says we have no right to involve another person. Okay, hold on one second, which we said. Right, so, oh, here we go. This is the paragraph I wanted to talk about. Bottom of page 82. So we're talking about now, now we're easing into to step nine, how we're, gonna really, how we're gonna make amends. The alcoholic is like a tornado roaring his way through the lives of others. Hearts are broken, sweet relationships are dead, affections have been uprooted, selfish and inconsiderable habits have kept the home in turmoil. We feel a man is unthinking when he says that sobriety is enough. He is like the farmer who came up out of his cyclone cellar to find his home ruined. To his wife, he remarked, don't see anything the matter here, Ma. Ain't it grand the wind stopped blowing? So this is basically what living with an addict looks like 
whether they are using or not. Because if they do not have another solution, they will destroy the lives of everyone around them because they're constantly on a quest to serve themselves. And anybody who gets in the way, even the people they love most, will suffer for that. It's very simple. And we learn behaviors that we use to get what we want. Whether they work or not, we think that they're going to help us. And so all of a sudden, oh, you know, I remember when I first got abstinent, I was still living with my parents, and my, you know, I expected everyone to be bowing down to me and applauding for me because I'm abstinent now, you guys. Like, do you see how healthy I'm eating? Like, do you see what I'm doing? Like, meanwhile, I, I was like, my, my mother asked me to drive my sister to school every morning. And my reaction was, <sighs> they were letting me live rent-free in their house after I graduated from college, okay? Can I drive my sister to school three minutes a day, once a day? <sighs> or can you take the dog for a walk in the afternoon when you get home? I would take the dog for a walk and yell at her the entire time. And this like adorable golden retriever. And then this one time I was so mad at her, I yanked her, her leash and she slammed her head into a car. Ooh. Yep, yep. That's untreated alcoholism, my friends. <laughs> yep. That's what I'm talking about, you know? I was abstinent. I was abstinent as the day is long. And I was skinny and I dressed like a champ. So I looked awesome, but I wouldn't want to be around me. My dog didn't want to be around me, you know? I was not safe, literally not safe to be around. So I don't get credit for being like a baseline functional human being if I'm going to be an asshole about it. Nobody wants to live with an asshole. I don't. So why should anybody else? 83, yes, there is a long period of reconstruction ahead. We must take the lead. Us, we're not waiting for other people to clean up their behavior so that we can start cleaning up ours. We start first. A remorseful mumbling that we are sorry won't fit the bill at all. And my husband has said that to me. He's like, you don't get to keep saying I'm sorry and then doing the same thing. He's called me on that and it's true. We ought to sit down with the family and frankly analyze the past as we now see it, being very careful not to criticize them. So I don't know if this is like a wife thing, but so I don't know like if when you take your vows, it's like, like thou shalt micromanage thy husband. Like, but like intuitively, I find that it's a running theme in most partnerships, especially from the women because we place our security in our partners. And so out of fear that I'm not going to get what I need, I try to control my husband. And my way of controlling is criticizing. Um, if you did it like this, then it would be fine. You know, why didn't you do it like that? Well, that's why this happened, because you did, you know. And no one asked my opinion. <laughs> Most of the time, no one asked my opinion. And now when my husband asks my opinion, my answer usually is, I don't know. Because I really don't know. I have no idea what to tell you. I like that answer much better. In fact, last night he came in and asked me for my opinion about something. I'm like, I don't know. He's like, why? Why are you being like that? I'm like, because I genuinely, not that I don't care about what he was saying, but I don't care. This doesn't make, this doesn't make or break anything. Do what you think is right. Whereas I would, you know, he's, we're building a deck. So I would be out there with my measuring tape and like, you know, we should do it like this and do what you want. Do whatever you want. I really don't care. It's fine. It's just a deck. Um, as long as it doesn't collapse, we're good. <laughs> 
Um, okay, so now we're toward the bottom. Oh, wow, okay. There may be some wrongs we can never fully right. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say to ourselves that we would right them if we could. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. And there may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases, but we don't delay if it can be avoided. We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. Okay, so I'm going to, this is the last story I'm going to tell you, and then I'm going to wrap up. So when I was 12, um, I was involved in a court case. I was not the person being tried, but basically there was a counselor at the camp that I went to, and she had done something to me that was questionable, but in my mind, it wasn't questionable enough. And so when I was asked what she had done, I made up a lot of things about what she did. And she went to court. And I had to go to court and say the things that I had said she had done on the stand. At that point, the thing had taken on so much momentum, I didn't know what to do. I was a child. Um, There were other kids also involved in the court case who had their things to say. I don't know if they were telling the truth or not. I do know that for me, and I did a lot of work on this, that one thing happened, but it, it felt weird for me, but might not have been. But because it didn't feel enough, I had to embellish. So I lied on the witness stand. This person, she was 26 years old. I believe she had some kind of special needs. I don't know what they were. Um, I don't remember much about the situation, uh, the details of it, because I was only uh, 11 when it happened. Either way, she was acquitted. Thank God she did not go to jail. However, many years later, when the time came for me to make amends to her, I spoke to my sponsor, whose sponsor was a lawyer, and they told me that I could not reach out to her. Because legally, if I did and admitted that some of the, most of the things I said were not true, my parents could be sued for libel and slander. So I couldn't implicate my parents like that. Um, and so I wrote her a letter and read it to somebody else. Uh, they call it a surrogate. You can get a surrogate, whatever. You know, for people who have died, you get surrogates. So I read this letter to this person. Always keeping in mind that if I ever saw this person on the street, I would be happy to say something to them. I've even looked for her on the internet. I can't find her. Um, that said, about four years ago, I was in a job, um, and I was falsely accused of something that I didn't do. And as a result, I lost my job, I lost my house, um, and I had to, and it was humiliating and terrible. And my husband, you know, my kids, we had to move them in the middle of the school year. It was just very, very traumatic. Once the dust settled, I was able to sit and think about it for a little bit. And aside from, like, my own part and the things that I had to learn from it, I realized that the situation had placed me on the exact other side of what I had done when I was 12. And maybe that was how I could make amends to this person, that I could really empathize now with what I had done to her. Maybe that was my way of saying, I really get it. I know what I did to you. 
because I did it. I, someone did it to me. And because of that, I could almost feel, and today I really do feel grateful. Maybe that was my amends. So the things in our lives work for us. And the things that we think we can't do, those amends, they, we get our opportunities. And even if that wasn't what that was for, for me it was. So who cares, you know? My point is that making amends is something that we do initially to clear away wreckage. Um, and if we're thorough about it, you know, they, they give us the promises at the end of step nine. And there's a reason for that. Because once we've done all this work and cleared it away, we're free. We don't have to live like that anymore. We're new people. But we'll continue making amends for the rest of our lives. Because even as we shoot toward being as perfect as we can be, we're never going to be perfect. And we're going to screw up. You know, and especially for me, my story is that the hardest place to practice these principles is in my own home, with my family, with my kids, you know, with my husband for sure. Um, it's, but we have that opportunity and we are given directions on the, where we're supposed to be aiming, where we're supposed to be going. And we're not going to do it perfectly, but the point is we do steps one through nine to get rid of all the crap and now we can do it differently for 10, 11, and 12. So um, I'm going to stop there. Can I sit the thing? Yep. Yeah.